The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. On this week's episode, we're discussing panpsychism and consciousness. Is it possible for all matter in the universe to hold consciousness? And can the theory of panpsychism be the solution to the problems of materialism and dualism? To help us explore the realms of panpsychism, we're joined by author and professor of philosophy at the University of Durham, Philip Goff. So this is the start of mathematical physics, which has gone incredibly well. But what we've forgotten, I think, is that it was never intended that physics should be a complete description of reality. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Philip Goff. If a tree falls in a forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? An age-old philosophical question, you might think. But in fact, this question was given a decisive answer in the 17th century by the father of modern science, Galileo. And that's what I'd like to start talking to you about today. So a key moment in the scientific revolution was Galileo's declaration that mathematics was to be the language of the new science, that the new science was to have a purely quantitative vocabulary. This is a much discussed moment. What is perhaps less discussed is the philosophical work that Galileo had to do to get to that position. And that's because before Galileo, following Aristotle, people thought that the the physical world was filled with qualities. There were colors on the surfaces of objects, smells floating through the air, tastes actually inside food. Uh, And the problem is you can't capture these kinds of qualities in the purely abstract quantitative vocabulary of mathematics. You can't capture in an equation what it's the redness of a red experience or the spiciness of paprika. So this was a challenge for Galileo's aspiration to exhaustively describe the physical world with mathematics. So what did he do? Well, Galileo got around this by proposing a radically new philosophical theory of reality. So we think of Galileo as a great experimental scientist, which of course he was, but he was also a great philosopher. So he proposed this theory, and according to this new philosophical theory, 
the qualities aren't really out there in the physical world, rather they are in the consciousness of the observer. So if there's someone looking at a tomato, uh, the, the redness isn't really out there on the surface of the tomato, rather it's in the consciousness of the person observing it. Or if someone's eating paprika, the spiciness isn't really inside the paprika, it's rather in the consciousness of the person eating the paprika. Or to return to the example we started with, if there's a huge tree crashing down in a forest, but there's no one there to hear it, no observer, no consciousness, no sound. So Galileo, as it were, stripped the physical world of its qualities. And after he'd done that, all that remained were the purely quantitative features of matter, things that can be captured in mathematical geometry, things like size, shape, location, motion, properties we can model in mathematics. Um, so so in, in Galileo's worldview, there's this radical division in nature between two domains. On the one hand, the domain of the purely quantitative domain of science on the one hand, and the qualitative domain of consciousness on the other. So on the one hand, the, the, the domain of science with its purely quantitative properties of size, shape, location, motion. And on the other hand, the domain of consciousness, consciousness with its qualities of colors, sounds, smells, and tastes. So this is the start of mathematical physics, which has gone incredibly well. But what we've forgotten, I think, is that it was never intended that physics should be a complete description of reality. The whole project was premised on putting consciousness outside of the domain of science. Okay, so why does this matter? Well, I think this has crucial implications for the area I work in, namely the science and philosophy of consciousness. I want to start by clearing up a little bit of ambiguity. The word consciousness is, is, is a very ambiguous word. Often people use it to mean something quite sophisticated like self-consciousness, awareness of one's own existence. This is something quite sophisticated that we might be reluctant to ascribe to many non-human animals. It's not clear a, a rabbit is aware of its own existence. But all, all that I'm going to mean, you know, all that's generally meant in these discussions by the word consciousness, it's probably a little bit, bit of a misleading word, really. All it really means is experience. Pleasure, pain, visual or auditory experience, these are all forms of consciousness. So consciousness in this sense is certainly something where we'd be happy to ascribe quite generally in the animal kingdom. Whether or not a rabbit is aware of its own existence, it certainly has experiences. If you're cruel enough to put a knife in a rabbit, it's going to feel pain. So I don't think it's difficult to define what we mean by consciousness. The challenge, the problem of consciousness is how consciousness fits into our scientific worldview. Despite great progress in our standard understand, uh, sorry, uh, great progress in our scientific understanding of the brain, we still don't really have even the beginnings of an explanation of how complicated electrochemical signaling is somehow able to give rise to an inner subjective world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes that each of us knows every second of waking life. So this is the profound challenge consciousness poses to the sciences. Now, it's, although it's broadly agreed that, that there is a profound challenge here, uh, one very common reaction is to say, okay, there's a problem, but we just need to plug away with our standards methods of investigating the brain, just do a little bit more neuroscience, maybe cognitive science, and we'll crack it. 
one thing I'm keen to press in my work as a philosopher of consciousness is upon reflection, it turns out this is, isn't just another scientific problem. In many ways, this is, the problem of consciousness is absolutely unique among scientific problems. And in fact, that the standard tools of scientific investigation are not really equipped to deal with it, at least not entirely. Okay, so let's explore that a little bit more. Let's have a little bit of water. Okay, so, so, so one way of pressing this is just to make the point that consciousness is not publicly observable. You can't look inside somebody's head and see their feelings and experiences. We know about consciousness not from observation and experiment, but from our immediate awareness of our own feelings and experiences. Um, now, now, science is used to dealing with unobservables. Fundamental particles like electrons and quarks, for example, can't be directly observed. But there's an important difference. Fundamental particles and other unobservable science postulates are postulated in order to explain what we can observe. Electrons and quarks are postulated as part of the, the standard model of particle physics, which is a, a theory that explains an incredible range of observable phenomena. In the unique case of consciousness, in contrast, the thing we are trying to explain is unobservable. And that is utterly unique among scientific problems. And it really constrains our capacity to deal with it experimentally. Okay, so, but that doesn't mean that we can't deal with it experimentally. We do have uh, a well-developed and robust experimental science of consciousness. So how do we do that? If, if consciousness is not observable, how do we, have a, how do we deal with it experimentally? Well, you, you can't observe someone's feelings and experiences, but fortunately, you can ask them, right? You can ask them what they're feeling and experiencing and rely on their testimony about their private, unobservable experiences. And if you do that while you're scanning their brain with an fMRI scanner or, a, or an EEG, you can correlate various kinds of brain activity with various kinds of conscious experience. We can discover that certain kinds of um, uh, brain activity always go along with, say, a feeling of hunger or an experience of red. And we can get more systematic about this. There are various proposals about what in general uh, is the correlation between brain activity and consciousness. And this is really crucial data. But it's not itself a complete theory of consciousness. And that's because what we ultimately want from a theory of consciousness is an explanation of those correlations. Why is it that a certain kind of brain activity comes along with an experience of red? Why is it that brain activity goes along with any kind of conscious experience? This is what we want explained. And because consciousness is unobservable, this is not a question we can just answer just doing more experiments. Uh, so the upshot is um, experimental work is important, but it leaves open multiple options. I think here it's a little bit like the situation in quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is one of our most successful scientific theories in terms of prediction. So much of our modern technology is based on it. Problem is, no one knows what the hell that theory is telling us about reality. And there are various interpretations, the many worlds interpretation, Copenhagen interpretation, um, Bohmian interpretation, and so on. Um, 
And it doesn't seem that we can distinguish these options simply on the basis of experiments. So, so you know, some scientists want to say, oh, well, if we can't do an experiment, this is just a stupid question. You know, that's just, it, the, predict the equations work. Let's just get on with it. This is sometimes called the shut up and calculate approach. Uh, the physicist Sean Carroll on his podcast has talked a lot about what, what a taboo it was for physicists interested in, in, in this question. Um, so we can pretend the question doesn't exist, but what more and more physicists and philosophers try to do is say, well, let's just lay out the options on quantum mechanics, the various theories, and see if we can distinguish between them on the basis of non-experimental considerations. And this is really where science and philosophy meet. So I think it's a similar situation with consciousness. The experimental data is very important, setting up those correlations between brain activity and conscious experience. But that just leaves open many options. At that point, we can either pretend the problem doesn't exist, as many have done and still do, or we can put out the various options, the various theories, and see if there's any way of deciding amongst them on non-experimental considerations. So, what are the various options on consciousness? She's got a cup, really, she? Well, there are two traditional options here. Uh, on the one hand, dualism, the view that consciousness is non-physical outside of the physical workings of the body and the brain. And on the other hand, materialism, roughly the view that consciousness can be explained in terms of the chemistry of the brain, the electrochemical signalings in the brain. Unfortunately, and this is really why the problem of consciousness is so hard, is that uh, both of these familiar options face quite profound and much discussed challenges. So I'll just give you a taste of the difficulties with these options. So the problem with dualism is that neuroscience seems to show no sign of the impact of an immaterial mind. So although dualists think the mind and the brain are separate, they think they stand in a close causal relationship. If the, if the, um, the, the soul, the immaterial mind, wants the arm to go up, it makes change in the brain, the arms go up. Uh, my, my material mind wants to express, express my thoughts as I'm speaking to you. It makes changes in the brain. My lips move. Sound comes out. Now, if there was an immaterial mind impacting on the brain every second of waking life, you'd think that would really show up in our neuroscience. There'd be all sorts of things happening in the brain that had no physical explanation. It would be like a poltergeist was playing with the brain. And that's not what we seem to find. He's, I've just finished a popular article for um, BBC Future, and here's the way I try to explain it there that might be helpful. The relationship between the, the mind and the brain for a dualist is a bit like the relationship between a drone pilot and his or her drone, right? You, you receive information from the drone, from the sensors of the drone, and you control it. Similarly, uh, you know, uh, for, for the dualist, you receive information from your brain and you control your body via your brain. Now, if you were to examine the physical workings of a drone, in principle, you could see where the radio signals come into the drone and the pilot controls it. Similarly, if dualism is true, you'd think by examining the brain, we'd see where the, the signals were coming in from the immaterial mind. Uh, Rene Descartes, perhaps the most famous dualist in history, hypothesized that it happened in the pineal gland, which is a real um, P-shaped gland in the, in, in, towards the center of the brain between the two hemispheres. 
But neuroscience reveals that there isn't really such a special place in the brain. And indeed, everything that happens in the brain seems to be caused by other physical processes in the brain. So it's rather like if we, um, suppose we found something we thought was a drone, and then we examined it, and we discovered actually everything that it's doing is caused by physical processes within it. Then we draw the conclusion, actually, this isn't a drone at all, it's a robot. Many philosophers and scientists would like to draw something like that conclusion about the human brain. Okay, so these kind of considerations push a lot of people to materialism. What's the problem with materialism? Well, here, the, here I think we come back to Galileo. Since Galileo, physical science has worked with a purely quantitative vocabulary. Whereas consciousness is an essentially quality-involving phenomenon. If you think about the smell of coffee, the feel of cold ice, the blueness of a blue experience. And as Galileo well understood, you can't capture these kind of qualities in the purely quantitative vocabulary of physical science. And so as long as your description of the brain is framed in the purely quantitative vocabulary of neuroscience, you're always going to leave out these qualities and hence leave out consciousness itself. So, I mean, I think the philosophical case against materialism is, is very compelling, um, as more and more people are accepting. Why does dualism, why does materialism still be, st still continue to be probably just about the most popular option? I think it's because of a certain kind of inference people draw from the history of science. They think, look at the great success of physical science, you know, and explaining more and more of our universe, producing incredible technology. You know, the wonders of technology has this kind of visceral effect on you. And this leads people to think, well, look, of course, it's one day going to explain consciousness. But I think this common reaction is rooted in a misunderstanding of the history of science. Yes, physical science has been incredibly successful, but it's been incredibly successful precisely because Galileo designed it to exclude consciousness. If Galileo were to time travel to the present day and hear about this difficulty of explaining consciousness in the terms of physical science, he'd say, of course you can't do that. I designed physical science to deal with the quantitative, not the qualitative, right? And, you know, the reason it's been so successful is that I gave it this very narrow, focused task. And the fact that it's been very good at dealing with the quantitative doesn't give you grounds to think it's going to be good at dealing with a quite different explanatory task of dealing with these subjective qualities we find in experience. So I think if, if, if we now want a science of consciousness, the whole physical science is premised on this separation Galileo introduced between the qualitative and the quantitative. If we now want a science of consciousness, we need to find a way of bringing these back together. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Fortunately, I think there is a way forwards. 
So that was the problem. Here we get to the solution. And it's rooted in very important work from the 1920s by the uh, philosopher and Nobel laureate Bertrand Russell and the um, uh, scientist Arthur Eddington, who was incidentally the first scientist to confirm general relativity uh, after the First World War. So, as I've said very many times before, I I'm inclined to think these guys did in the 1920s for the science of consciousness what Darwin did in the 19th century for the science of life. And it's a tragedy of history that for various historical reasons we could go into, it got forgotten about for so long, but it's recently been rediscovered in academic philosophy and is, is causing a great deal of excitement. And um, you know, it's part of the reason I, I, I wrote my, uh, my book, Galileo's Error, is to try and get these ideas out to a general audience, you know, because something can be causing, everything's so specialized these days, something can be causing great excitement in an area of academic, uh, uh, academia, and then Outside, nobody knows about it. Okay, so the starting point of Russell and Eddington is that physical science doesn't, physical science tells us less than you might think about the nature of physical reality. I think in the public mind, physics is on its way to giving us this complete story of the nature of space and time and matter. Uh, but what what Russell and Eddington realize is that for all its virtues, physics is confined to telling us about the behavior of matter, about what it does. So let's take some concrete examples. What does physics tell us about an electron? Well, it tells us, for example, that it has mass and negative charge. How does physics characterize mass? Well, objects of mass are disposed to attract other objects of mass and to resist acceleration. How does physics characterize negative charge? Objects with negative charge are disposed to repel other objects with negative charge and attract objects with positive charge. This is all about behavior, what stuff does. And we find a similar story moving up the sciences. Uh, chemical elements uh, and compounds are characterized in terms of A, their causal relationships with other elements, chemical elements and compounds. For example, acids are defined in terms of their capacity to denote sorry, donate protons or hydrogen ions or to accept electrons, or in terms of their physical constituents. For example, water is made up of molecules with two hydrogen atoms and one water, one oxygen atom, one water atom. Sorry, obviously a typo there, which I read, I noticed last time I did this talk and then neglected to remove. Okay, moving up to neurophysiology, brain states are characterized either in terms of A, their chemical relationships with other brain states and bodily or behavioral states, or in terms of their chemical constituents. For example, neurotransmitters are defined in terms of their chemical constitution as well as what they do. So, um, so this is all the way up and down the physical sciences. This is all about behavior, what stuff does. Okay, well, so, so, so you know, the higher level sciences, we either learn about what stuff does or we defer to lower levels Ultimately, this gets down to physics, where we're just told about behavior. So what's the problem there? Well, you know, this is very useful information. If you have rich information about what stuff does, you can manipulate the world in all sorts of extraordinary ways, leading to incredible technology that's transformed our planet. But if we only know what an electron does, we only know about its relationships with other things, how it affects and is affected by other particles. We know nothing about how the electron is in and of itself, independently of other things. Nothing of what philosophers like to call the intrinsic nature of the electron. So to try and give an analogy, imagine you've got 
a board with lots of chess pieces on. Um, you know, you might be interested in knowing about the relationships with these pieces, how they interact. You've got there a black knight, uh, two spaces up and one space along from a white rock. And that's important because it could be that in the next move, the knight takes the rook, depending on whose move it is. Uh, so, so that's really interesting information if you're playing chess. But you might also want to know, well, what are these chess pieces, these th physical things on the board? What are they in and of themselves? Are they made of wood? Are they made of plastic? Are they made of metal? And that's what we mean by the sort of intrinsic nature, the, the nature of the thing independently of other things. Similarly, when it comes to physics, you might be interested in one, knowing what physics tells you about the interactions of fundamental particles, what they do, how they relate to each other. But you might also want to know what is an electron in, an, in itself, independently of its interactions. And about this, physics has nothing to say. So this is sometimes called the problem of intrinsic nature. This idea that actually there's this huge hole in our standard scientific story of the universe. Physical science tells us what stuff does, but leaves us completely in the dark about its intrinsic nature. What's this got to do with consciousness? Well, I think the genius of Russell and Eddington was to bring together two problems that on the face of it have nothing to do with each other and to see that they could be given a unified solution. On the one hand, the problem of consciousness, and on the other hand, the problem of intrinsic natures. So the problem of consciousness is roughly that we need a place for consciousness in our scientific worldview. The problem of intrinsic natures is that we have this huge hole at the center of our standard scientific worldview. So the unified solution is to try and plug the hole with consciousness, right? We're looking for a place for consciousness. We've got this big hole. Let's try and put consciousness in the hole. So the result is a kind of form of panpsychism. This is the ancient view that consciousness is a consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it. But unlike earlier versions, this is this is a form of panpsychism stripped of any mystical or supernatural connotations. So the idea is there's just matter, nothing spiritual or supernatural, but matter can be described from two perspectives. Physical science describes it, as it were, from the outside in terms of its behavior, but matter from the inside in terms of its intrinsic nature is constituted of forms of consciousness. So at the micro level, we have um, physics characterizes physical properties like mass, charge, spin, in terms of their behavior, what they do, their relationships. But in their intrinsic nature, these are incredibly simple forms of experience, almost unimaginably simple forms of experience. And then moving up to the chemical level, chemistry characterizes elements and compounds in terms of their behavior and their components. But in their intrinsic nature, these are complex forms of consciousness derived from simpler forms of consciousness at the level of physics. Moving up to the level of neuroscience, uh, neuroscience characterizes brain states in terms of their behavior and their components, their relationships. But in their intrinsic nature, these are incredibly complex forms of consciousness derived from the simpler forms of consciousness at more basic levels. So this is a beautifully simple, elegant way of bringing consciousness into our scientific worldview. As I like to put it, in the, in the 1620s, Galileo separated the qualitative and the quantitative. In the 1920s, uh, Russell and Eddington found a way of bringing them back together, of seeing them as two sides of the same coin. 
Okay, that's all very well, but you know, why should we believe it? Um, most common question again, you know, how do you test this? Well, as I've tried to say, you know, I think in the case of the problem of consciousness, experimental data is very important, but it, but it leaves open a lot of options. In fact, all of these options, materialism, dualism, panpsychism, comments, in, at least in some versions, are empirically indiscernible. They have exactly the same predictions. So what can you do? Well, you can say, you could say, I don't know. You could say, this is a silly question. You could pretend it doesn't exist. Or you can just look at the various options and try to decide amongst them on the basis of non-experimental considerations. And I think when you do that, panpsychism comes up as the clear, obviously the option to go to, for. So in contrast to materialism, Russell Eddington panpsychism allows us to accommodate both the quantitative and the qualitative. Uh, you know, in the, because um, physical science works with this purely quantitative vocabulary, in its description of the brain, it inevitably just leaves out those qualities. Whereas um, Russell Eddington panpsychism can incorporate those qualities as the intrinsic nature of brain states of matter. Um, and in contrast to dualism, Russell Eddington panpsychism is consistent with our observational knowledge of the brain. And that's because it's not dualistic. There's not, it's not that we've got physical processes on one side and consciousness on the other, and then we wonder where they meet in the brain and doesn't seem to be anywhere. Um, rather, there's just physical processes, but physical processes in their intrinsic nature are forms of consciousness. So, We've got this wonderful line from Sherlock Holmes that I've been using recently. Once you eliminate the impossible, what remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. And that's just kind of how I feel about panpsychism. We can, materialism can be ruled out because it just can't account for the qualitative reality of consciousness. Dualism can be ruled out on more straightforward scientific considerations. What remains is panpsychism that just elegantly avoids all these problems. So just to finish and I'll give a quick plug for my book, uh, where I'm trying to communicate these ideas to a more general audience. And I suppose I'm trying for a middle way between two standard options on consciousness. On the one hand, um, you know, some people say it's consciousness is so magical and mysterious, we'll never explain it. On the other hand, people say, no, we just need to plug away with our standard scientific approach, we'll crack it. I try to do a middle way here. We can be confident that we'll have a science of consciousness one day, but we need to rethink what science is. For 400 years, we've been working in a scientific paradigm that excludes consciousness. If, we, if science now is, is to aspire to a complete theory of nature, it needs to work towards a theory able to account for both the quantitative data of physical science and the qualitative reality of consciousness. And in contrast to either materialism or dualism, Russell Eddington panpsychism is a framework able to do this. But this is just the first step. This isn't a complete theory of consciousness. This is a very general framework for understanding how consciousness fits into the scientific story. And it will take decades or centuries of interdisciplinary work between philosophers and physicists and neuroscientists to fill in the details. So this is why I wrote this book, to try and get these ideas that are causing so much excitement in academic philosophy out to a more general audience. So it's just like in, I mean, for example, Darwin's theory of uh, evolution by natural selection is a very general framework, and it takes a century of work in that to get to DNA. Um, finally, I think I'd like to say that this matters. This isn't just 
an abstract intellectual puzzle. So for the, you know, the first four chapters of my book, I build a case for panpsychism as the best explanation of how consciousness fits into our scientific worldview. But in the fifth chapter, I explore the implications for human existence, for our relationship to the environment, our relationship to each other. Consciousness is at the root of human identity. It's arguably the basis of everything that's important in human existence. And yet, I believe our official scientific worldview does not have a place for consciousness. And I think this can lead to a deep sense of alienation. We know we have feelings and experiences, and yet our official scientific worldview tells us that all that's going on in our heads is complicated electrochemical signaling. And I think many of us know intuitively that that's not the same thing. And I think there is robust philosophical support for that intuition. So, of course, we should be looking for, not for the view we'd like to be true, but the view that's most likely to be true. I think a strong case can be made for the probable truth of panpsychism on the basis that I've been, the considerations I've been talking about today. But I also think it, off, it offers a view of the world that's slightly more consonant with our mental and spiritual well-being, slightly better for our relationship with the planet as I explore in the book. So, in conclusion, I suggest panpsychism offers us not only a possible solution to one of the most profound challenges of contemporary science, but also a way of transforming in a positive way our understanding of what it means to be a human being. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.